coming together like this once a quarter to remind ourselves uh, what it is that's worthy of placing our heart on or our heart upon. And I'm sure you notice, like I do, that um, my heart gets pulled in all kinds of directions. And uh, often you know, worrying about this or wanting that seems the easier route to live a life that's really about getting something, you know, getting a particular future for myself, for example. And so the whole point of the practice that we do and the organization that we've built together, the center, it uh, on the one hand stands as a reminder for us that like a counterweight to the tendency to get distracted, to be swept away by things that may be beautiful on some level, but ultimately are limited. Like even even something relatively beautiful like keeping our bodies in good shape, keeping our bodies healthy, which is, as we know, it's an endless pursuit. What's the right food? How much food? How to prepare it? Whether to use plastic bottles or metal bottles for our water. And uh, there's really no end to these relatively wholesome pursuits, let alone the less wholesome pursuits that we get excited about. So coming here, hopefully, doing our practice, seeing each other's faces, talking with one another. Hopefully, the idea is that it's a reminder about, on the one hand, the limitations of the different streams in our culture compelling us to worry about this or to pursue that. And uh, also, this is a, a hope, at least, that together we remind ourselves of another possibility. But we can't even take that for granted because even an organization like Common Ground and even the kind of practices that we do here they can get, I don't know if corrupted may be too strong of a word, but they can just be another way of making ourselves feel better. Like, I'm part of common ground. I'm a meditator, and you don't. <laughs> or I meditate more than you. I've done more retreats than you. Or this meditation center is better than that meditation center. Or maybe we're not as good as that meditation center. <laughs> and then, you know, it's really not much different than anything else in the world. So we both need, you know, we need reminders about the limitations of our cultural personal habit energy, you know, that the tendencies we have to use our life in particular ways, we have to be reminded it's limited. It's not really going to make much of a difference in the end to have pursued this, have invested time, energy in this. And then we have to watch out that in being reminded of the limitations of the culture that we don't just recreate it here. 
the same things that are going on everywhere else, inside our hearts, outside in the world, then just Kama Garden just becomes another manifestation of that, or our practice becomes another manifestation of that. So with any of these refuges, you know, once a quarter we come together, like today, around the solstice, each solstice and each equinox, and we formally do the refuges, the three Buddhist refuges and the five lay precepts, mindfulness trainings, together as a reminder. And it's really uh, useful for us more than just doing this as a ritual to take this opportunity to understand what's underneath the precepts, underneath the refuges, or what are they really about? Or what's this practice really about? Because we all come to the practice for different reasons, and that's appropriate. You know, some of us are in a crisis and we need support, so we come. Some of us are just curious, intellectually curious about what Buddhism is. But those of us, you know, who stay around, then hopefully we're staying around because of what we could call freedom or an ease, uh, buoyancy, a nimbleness, a wholeness that isn't about anything in particular. Like it isn't because we're in a really nice place on a beautiful summer day with a nice group of people. But the freedom, it's inherent. It's unconditional, meaning it isn't about that I'm better than you, so I have freedom. But what, we're, what the center represents, what the practice represents, what the three refuges represent, and the five mindfulness trainings of not harming other beings and not stealing things, taking things that aren't ours, and not getting involved in sexual misconduct or speaking in a way that's harmful or lying or intoxicating the mind in a way that clouds our understanding, clouds our vision. Undertaking these trainings, taking refuge in the Buddha, this clarity of mind, the Dhamma, the way it is, the Sangha, the community that understands the way it is, it's all about freedom. That's the whole point. And this is, whether clearly or just more intuitively, when we come here, when we do our practice, when we see each other at the grocery store, hopefully we're being reminded, not in a theoretical sense of freedom, but the possibility of freedom right now. Even if it means that what gets illuminated is what's in the way of freedom right now. That's also really helpful. This is one of the most common things I remember experiencing when I've seen my teachers, my various teachers over the years. It's like when I show up in front of one of my teachers, mostly I notice the lack of freedom. <laughs> you know, like wanting to impress is a form of dukkha, a form of non-freedom, or, uh, you know, judging myself for wanting to impress, <laughs> or... Just, you know, wanting to put a particular spin on my experience so it sounds like I'm doing the practice correctly, whatever that might mean. So sometimes coming to Common Ground, it's not that 
we um, somehow intuitively or directly rest in the open, free, loving, aware space of the heart, but we see what's not there. Which is great, because a lot of the times when we're out in the world, we're totally oblivious. We assume, to some degree at least, that um, I'm, on, I'm on the right path, even though we might be totally obsessing about, you know, as if the renovation of our home is going to make us happy, or as if this particular relationship or this particular thing is going to do it for us. So um, in a little bit, we'll do the refuges and precepts together. We'll recite them, reflect on them together, talk about our community for the last 10 minutes or so before the potluck at 12 noon. But for the next 10 minutes or so, I, I thought I'd re- share a few reflections about the refuge in Sangha, or refuge usually translated as spiritual community or spiritual friendship those who know the way. And for me, maybe for others, it's, uh, I think, maybe the more difficult of the three refuges. So if you're relatively new to the practice or to this tradition of uh, Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist teachings, one of the most ancient of the practices and rituals is taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And in a superficial way, people can think of like connecting to this historic teacher, the, the Buddha, who lived 2,600 years ago. And so the Buddha then stands for this guy who is smart and deep and wise and whatever we imagine him to be, and who laid out a set of teachings which then would be Dhamma or Dharma, and then those who practice those teachings and gain some benefit is Sangha. And it's okay to understand it on that level, but it's really just the beginning. It is appropriate to honor the lineage of wise men and women from the Buddha on down who have been our teachers, whether we met them directly or just indirectly. It's very appropriate to be grateful and respectful and, and to honor the teachings themselves by putting them into practice, by not just ignoring them, and uh, honor the community that reminds us of those teachings. But the point of the Three Refuges is really meant to be an ongoing reflection, not something we do once a quarter together as a group. But even better, uh, at least once a day, if not throughout the day, this, as a reflection, sums up the whole path. You know, you can take so many of the different models, whether it's the Four Noble Truths or the basic meditation instruction or the Three Refuges or the Five Mindfulness Trainings. You can take any one of those systems and that's enough. You don't need necessarily the whole package. So if we just worked with these Three Refuges for a whole life, almost like a a filter through which we lived our life, So we're reflecting on the Buddha superficially as this wise person and other wise people, 
But then, uh, as the reflection deepens, it's not about the person. It's about particular qualities in that person. It isn't about the biology of the Buddha, you know, his particular liver and particular skin and or his particular genes that he had, or even the particular personality that he had. It's definitely not about those things. It's about particular qualities of of his mind, and almost better, not so much what was there in terms of the qualities of his mind, but what wasn't there. And then we realize, well, these qualities or the absence of certain things in the mind it isn't specific to the Buddha. The whole point of what the Buddha set in motion is to, for other beings to discover what he discovered, but to discover it in their own mind, in their own heart. So the reflection on the Buddha is a reflection on the nature of the mind, of this mind, or the nature of the heart, this heart, right here. So we can do this all day long and sort of illuminating what's not the Buddha, what's not this loving, free, unencumbered heart, and what is this free, loving, nimble, responsive, engaged heart, just to be reflecting on that. We can do that all day long. This itself is the path. And the Dhamma is just reminding us that as we do this reflection on the nature of the mind, because, in a sense, we're orienting toward the nature of the mind as we're a parent or an employee or a volunteer or a lover or you know, all the different roles we play in life, these roles don't get in the way of this reflection on the mind, on the heart. So this is the understanding of Dhamma. Dhamma is everything that we experience, inner and outer. And the way we relate to Dhamma is we welcome it. We don't see it as a problem. So a non, uh, somebody who uh, isn't on this path, so that's m- us most of the time. <laughs> when we're not on this path, that means we're taking the conditions of our lives seriously. And that's what we're investing in. That's what we're taking refuge in. Am I too cool or am I too warm? Did I do the right thing on Sunday morning or would I have been better doing something else? This is what we take refuge in most of the time. This is Dhamma. But when the Buddhist is taking refuge in Dhamma, he's taking, he means taking refuge in the understanding that Dhamma is just Dhamma. It comes and goes. It's not personal. In a way, it's empty empty of self-centered drama. It's just nature doing its thing. Everything, including the content of our mind, that's just nature doing its thing. It's very much in the same way the breeze or the sound of the bird is nature doing its thing. So this is taking refuge in Dhamma. So it's Dhamma, things as they actually are, not things as we interpret them to be, but things as they actually are free of our interpretations, our concepts. And then Sangha is when we see Buddha and Dhamma, when they're playing together, when they're awakened, the understanding of the nature of the mind and not being confused by things as they are, the conditions in our lives, the circumstances, 
when those are playing together, when we see that in ourselves or in somebody else, that's what Sangha is. And there can be people who are often quite deluded who have moments of being Sangha, like ourselves. <laughs> you know, most of the time, we are caught up in things, in our attachment and aversion to things, right? But there are moments when we're not so attached, not so averse, when we're not caught in the world of things, the world of experience, when we're reflecting and maybe even resting in the nature of mind, the nature of mind that doesn't separate things into this and that, so there's an experience of fullness or unity. People from other traditions call it God or divine, something divine, something holy. And so... Our job, as a, reflect, uh, as a person interested in this path, you know, we reflect on the Buddha, the Dhamma. Well, how do we reflect on Sangha? Well, it's learning to see that in people and in ourselves. And this, for me, is a very challenging practice. I don't claim to be good at it at all. But I, I definitely honor it as an important practice. To be able to look at people... And it's like this capacity we can develop. When we look at somebody, when we see somebody, when we're talking to somebody, it's like we're not confused by their personality. <coughs> they have a personality. They've been conditioned. The mind has been conditioned to be afraid of things, to be attached to things. And we're learning in a way to see right through that, not to be oblivious to the personality, not to ignore it, but not to be confused by people's personalities. So what we're learning to see when we see people is the nature of mind and the nature of Dhamma, with the Buddha and Dhamma. So the personality, the body, that's Dhamma. That's just conditions of nature unfolding lawfully and naturally. The personality that the person is exhibiting is it unfolding naturally, couldn't be other than it is. The body is unfolding naturally, can't be other than it is. And then we're also, when we're not confused by the personality and the body, the form, then we can see Buddha. And not just in other beings, we can see it everywhere. We're seeing this, it's like, uh, instead of seeing things from a dualistic point of view, we're seeing things from a, uh, as... Um, it's like the, the, the flavor is a flavor of wholeness. It's like it's hard to talk about, but like everything belongs. And it doesn't matter what you look, look at. Like we can look at a tree, and if it's like an ugly tree, then, then we get caught by the ugliness of the tree. You know, maybe it's been deformed, or maybe it's slowly dying, or something like that. And then, you know, we're mad at it in some way, or mad at whoever did it, or... Or it's a beautiful tree, and then we're, we get attached to it, and we want one in our yard, or we you know, don't want anybody to harm it, or something like that. But when we are not caught by the form of the tree, the location, the beauty of the tree, then, then what we actually see is that uh, it's just this quality that it belongs, that it, we're seeing its perfection. But not the perfection of its particular qualities. It's really hard to talk about, but it's, it's a reflection or an illumination of Buddha, 
of the essential wholeness or the essential perfection, sort of uh, seeing things beyond a dualistic view. And this is available to us all the time. And then the tree becomes Sangha because its particip- participation in our life is, a li- is like a great teacher to us. So that's what Sangha means. It's that in this moment, this experience is our teacher. This person, this tree, this awareness of our own internal state, it's like our teacher. It's illuminating essential freedom that life is to be trusted deeply. That we don't, that struggle is not the way. Fear is not the way. Craving is not the way. Trust is the way. Love or a a universal love, a non-specific love is the way. And anything can be Sangha for us. But it's not somebody else's responsibility to be Sangha for us. <laughs> you know, Craig, why aren't you Sangha for me more? <laughs> you know, what we have a tendency to do, or more likely for my wife, you know, when? <laughs> why aren't you, you know, leading, showing me the way, removing my obstacles? Some of you know in Hinduism they've got Ganesh, the elephant god, uh, the god that is. Uh, symbolized by an elephant. And uh, Ganesh is the remover of obstacles. But so it's easy to think that Sangha's out there and that we're looking for Sangha. You know, is is common ground my Sangha? Or is this Vipassana practice coming out of the Buddhist Theravada tradition, is that my Sangha? You know, or is this teacher or these teachers, are they my Sangha? Or does somebody need to be a monk or a nun to be Sangha? And it's in a way where we keep missing the point because Sangha, I mean, we're surrounded by Sangha. Buddha and Dhamma are playing together all the time. And what's in the way of seeing Sangha, taking refuge in Sangha, is our own understanding in this moment. Because You know, the Buddha walked the earth. I mean, let's just assume there was this guy 2,600 years ago who was deeply wise, and he walked the earth according to the, you know, tradition, 40, uh, as a teacher, as an enlightened being for 40-some years. And uh, not everybody he met (laughs) saw him as Sangha, you know. And what was the difference between the people who met this person and were deeply affected, and people who met him and weren't affected. Or even today, you know, many of us have come across people who other people have found to be very powerful teachers. Or sometimes somebody to us seems like a great teacher, and sometimes they seem like a fool. (laughs) So who should we blame? So the important thing, I mean, this is just, it isn't. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.